Welcome to SJMS Talks. This podcast is published by the academic journal Scandinavian Journal of Military Studies. The war in Ukraine has forced most countries, including in Scandinavia, to reconsider how to organize and invest in the armed forces. In Denmark, the Danish defense agreement is currently being negotiated, and the expectation is a much-needed facelift affecting all aspects of the military organization. But it is not enough simply to buy the latest and most advanced military technology. What is needed, among many other things, is a well-educated core of officers and commanders capable of navigating the battlefield of today and tomorrow. To talk about the future of military education and training, we have invited one of our contributors, Søren Schukrein. Last year, Søren published an article on military command, doctrine and executive decision-making titled What Military Commanders Do and How They Do It. In his article, Søren interviewed over 30 former and current NATO commanders, among them former U.S. Secretary of Defense James Mattis, asking them about their understanding of military command. In most research on the topic, command is understood as a control and management issue, regulated in procedures and doctrine. But if you talk to the commanders and read their autobiographies and memoirs, as San has done, the individual judgment and gut feeling is a central part of the narrative. San argues that command must always be understood as both individualized and situated. What is needed to exercise command is not only an ability to use the tools available, which includes the surrounding staff, the technologies and the doctrine, but it also requires an individual ability to exercise command on uncertain grounds, where surprise, creativity and risk-taking are the key ingredients. San has experience from the field and currently finishes his PhD about the uses of military doctrine at Roskilde University. Today, San does not represent the Danish defense, but speaks on his own behalf as a researcher and a military scholar. San, thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. Your article is already one of the most popular articles on the SLMS website. You've been interviewed in podcasts, blogs and magazines. Why do you think there's such an interest in the topic of command right now? So, first of all, I think it's an underexplored topic in the military profession. Most of the research that has been made is on individual commanders, what they thought, their operations, often centered around either Asian times or World War II particularly. Then Anthony King published a book in 2019 explicitly investigating how commanders or how command had evolved at the divisional level. And his argument is basically that it has evolved from a very, he calls it a heroic or very much relies on the individual commander to a sort of an emergent command collective. So there is a debate, but it's also a rather small debate. It is linked to wider debates on management, uh, the role of executive officers in other professions outside the military. But the military is particular in the form that it is not a business. We do things, or at least it's a different business, right? Uh, So the objective is not to earn money. Um, The objective is to solve political purposes using violence. The other part is that A regular business will get its feedback from the market. You put a product out, people either buy it or they don't. The military profession is different, and renowned historian Michael Howard described it as a Olympic swimmer training for the Olympics 
but on land because it can't get into the water. So there is an absence of a feedback mechanism as well. I've been either doing doctrine, doing military operations on the ground or training people uh, throughout my career, 20 years in the army now. And it seemed, it occurred to me that we tend to become rather, not dogmatic, but if I present a tactical, a tactical problem to 20 officers, I will most likely get the exact same solution. Be maybe because the problem I present them is already tailored and the solution is built in there, so we just need to find it. What the commanders I've interviewed stated that real-world problems are different. First of all, they are not clear-cut as they are in, in the training exercise we do. So a lot of times the commanders themselves will have to translate very vague political guidance into concrete military action. I think it's a, that part is a part that particularly Anthony King did not explore. So he explored how we manage operations, which is a collective, because I don't think it would be a surprise to anyone in uniform that we do things as units, we train units. Uh, my particular focus is what about the parts that can't be delegated or shouldn't be delegated? What is that sets the commander apart from the rest of the unit? Since you, since you wrote um, the article or started the process of writing the article, a little thing in Ukraine happened. And um, there's been a lot of attention in Denmark to um, invest more money in the Danish defense. So if you were asked as part of a defense agreement that's ongoing at the moment to contribute with an educational component on the staff and commander level, what would you recommend based on your findings and your conversation with all these uh, commanders? Taking a mission that is giving tearing it apart and make a plan that is coherent, analytically sound, it is well synchronized, all that, I think we do that very well. What I'm not so sure we're so good at is what Clausewitz called fog and fiction, all the unexpected things that happen on the battlefield. And at least all of us who've been deployed, or even on exercise, learn as, the, an, as an embodied experience that if you do, if you merely follow doctrine, you, come, you become predictable. If you come, become predictable, your solution will not be optimal because it is rather easily, it can rather easily be defeated by the adversary because they know what you will do. So imagine playing, Imagine playing chess against somebody who always does the same. It's rather easy to 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 deny what they are, what they are doing, and the commanders in the article sort of tend to say the same that the most formative experiences for them were not going through staff college, learn the method. The method is important, so I'm not arguing against method. I'm not arguing against deductive analysis. But what commanders stated that something needs to be put on top of that in order to sort of progress beyond it. So we have students and cadets make a plan, then we test the plan according to a script that we have made ourselves. There, is, there isn't this room for surprising maneuvers or unexpected enemy action. Everything is tightly controlled in a scripted exercise. What you get from non-scripted exercises is, of course, th there will, of course, be a lot of noise as well, but you also get the Clausewitzian fog 
and friction. And maybe you learn that sometimes doing doing the surprising thing is what gets you to reach your objective, not doing what you're supposed to do, but doing what works. And it's, but it's a balance, right? We can't train, you, you, can't, you can't have intuition. It's, just, it's, it's not a God-given thing. It is pattern recognition. So you need to learn the basics, which I think we're very good at, but you also need to learn how to transgress or move beyond the basics, where I think we could do better. How do we do better? So in the ideal world, we had lots of units. We had a training grounds with a professional opposing forces using adversary equipment, fighting with adversary doctrine. Um, but that might be a bit too far-fetched for most of us. Maybe a way to do it here at the Royal Danish Defence College could be working with war games, that is, playing out the plan, or having staffs plan for both sides of the conflict and then try to play it out. Not to prove doctrine, not to prove the sort of methodological or structured method of how we do planning, but try out the plan and see what works. We are shaped by the experiences or the scenarios we see. And if there isn't a feedback mechanism, maybe we confuse the scenario with reality. But reality is much more complex. And I think there is a thing in military history where we could explore that a lot more. And the commanders, every single commander in my study has emphasized military history as important as well. You say we need to read more military history. We need these free exercises. When reading your article, that was what, what I really draw out of it. I found it really interesting that we need these feedback mechanisms because there's always an opponent an opponent when we are fighting. But when you're like specifically, like practically, what are the obstacle in the way we organize and the way we train and educate our officers today to actually get those things in? Is it a time resource issue? What what are the main obstacle in, obstacles, I guess? I'm going out on a limb here because it's not what I did in the article, but but I'm, 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 I'm sure I can sort of think of an answer anyway. So first of all, I think there are obstacles on several layers. So the immediate obstacle would be time restraints and resources. I think there is a mental issue as well. Teaching a method and controlling that method and giving feedback on whether or not the method is followed is a lot more easy than looking at a plan and sort of use, again, one's own personal professional judgment to sense whether or not this is sound. I think it's a different form It's a different form of training and education than what we've been used to. Maybe we also need to train the instructors in embracing that uncertainty as well. So now the instructors, when I worked at the Royal Danish Military Academy as a tactics instructor, I wrote the scenario. I knew sort of more or less what was a sound solution. If we are to embrace this idea about free exercises, suddenly the training staff is also on exercise. And the valuable input is not whether or not some form of procedure was followed, but trying to engage in a in genuinely 
a, a form of a form of dialogue where one is generally interested in exploring how did this play out why did it play out this way and refrain from coming up with an answer whether something was right or wrong but i think it's a mental problem both on part of the instructors and the institution again it's much more easy to teach a process but maybe it's also on part of the students that come here and sort of expect to be instructed in or learn the method in some way but maybe it could could, could be combined maybe we could learn the method and then sort of switch over and now we try the method or you're free to you're free to diverge from the method and again war games is war games are simulations of some sort where people try it out and again where the feedback is not whether or not you follow procedure but why things worked or why things didn't work and then in particular i guess making the opposing commanders talk to each other what was it that got me off the rails where was i surprised where was i not surprised so we we learn that planning is not simply a static process where we start from a basic set of premises and then get a plan planning is a continuous process and warfare always involves more than one party right so whenever i do something i would expect the opponent to do something mm. i can try to figure it out when i do my planning and, and and compare the different courses of action but i could also try to play it out and again it is back to the commanders that again and again stated that what was particularly informative was that experience doing everything right and still get it wrong So you're talking about these war games and military history and something else you've been writing about and talking about elsewhere is also the new technologies. How do they change things? How can they be used? But also how they, do they disrupt the way commanders should work today? So I think I think technology is sort of a double-edged sword. So there's this idea that with the with technology we now do what we talked about 10 or 15 years ago about swarming that an issue arises and a lot of independent units can swarm to the area and coordinate their things. The other part is that suddenly the commander or the idea is that the commander can remove fog and friction. So using technology they can see every detail. And if you can see every single detail and you have that professional knowledge and professional judgment, why shouldn't you interfere in very small processes? And I think the picture we, we got when they picked out Osama bin Laden in Pakistan, we saw the president and his advisors. What I get is that they looked at the operation, but it doesn't take long to sort of imagine that they would interfere in the operation and i have seen a divisional commander being very concerned about one company that was placed somewhere on the on the plasma screen obviously it was a bug in the computer system they worked they used in the simulation nevertheless it drew everybody's attention to that company so a a commander commanding 20,000 troops used all his attention in a bug on a bug in the system. We used to worry about 
the strategic corporal, people very low in the military organization suddenly get a massive impact on the military operation. The other part is the tactical general. So the general that refrains or can't let go of the of the tactical battle and tries to conduct it. So the British have a saying that the commanding general's task is up and out. But maybe the lure of technology is something that challenges that up and out. Maybe even the the idea, so mission command is one of the core tenets in NATO doctrine. Maybe mission command emerged because of fog and friction. It was an answer to not being able to control everything in detail. I think technology has the lure or the promise of being able to control everything, which I think is a danger uh, because it's not. It can't be. It can't be controlled that way. So, a double-edged sword. I don't have any definitive answers, right? But but there are there are pr- plenty of promises, but there are plenty of problems that comes along with it as well. One of the big shots you interviewed uh, in the article is uh, James Mattis, four-star general. What would he say about how commanders should be educated in the future? Would he agree with you? I'm, I'm not sure what he would say. I think I think the first thing he would say is read history. Um, it's been a continuous thing, both in the interview I did with him, but also a lot of stuff I read uh, about him. He's an avid historian, as most of the generals I've interviewed are. And I think the basic argument would be that if you read history... If you're well vested in history, you're not completely at a loss when you find yourself in a new situation, because somebody at some point in time would have faced something that is rather more or less similar to what you're facing. We have arrived at the last question of this podcast. What are you reading right now? I'm actually rereading an art, a book on the Israeli intelligence failure leading up to the Yom Kippur War in 1973. It's called The Watchman Fell Asleep and basically looks at how the Israeli intelligence service got into a form of groupthink, confirming confirming what they believed instead of looking at the empirical evidence that was yeah, evident for them, actually, Le- giving them much less time to prepare for that war than they could have used. So that's a recommendation. Thank you, Søren, for being our guest on this first podcast episode of SJMS Talks. This podcast was brought to you by the Scandinavian Journal of Military Studies. It was produced by Jeppe Tejsker Jacobsen, Ravni Lohme and Sofie Baunheit. Music by Jens Bjerring. SGMS is an online open access journal publishing both high quality research and valuable practice oriented studies relevant to the military profession. This journal is produced and published by the Royal Danish Defence College, the Norwegian Defence University College, the Swedish Defence University, the Centre for Military Studies at the University of Copenhagen and the Swedish Centre for Studies of Armed Forces and Society. Visit us at sgms.nu. Thank you for listening.